Real Presence Live. That which is beautiful will manifest itself in truth and in goodness. Local. The challenges that we're facing in our generation, we just need the gospel. I mean, every every culture, every generation just needs to know how the gospel applies. Engaging. We don't bring any life at all to the church. The church is, is the life. It gives us the life. Live. The reality is, He is all things beautiful, capital B. And so anything that is authentically beautiful draws us, even if we don't realize it, to God. Praise be the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Welcome to another edition of Real Presence Live as we are coming to you on the Real Presence Radio Network. Father James Gross, a priest of the Diocese of Fargo, here in our Grand Forks studio in the uh, near Southside Historic District of the uh, Grand Cities on a beautiful, sun-splashed, brisk autumn morning. And I have with me Father Jason Leffer. Good morning. morning. Father Gross. It's great. On the, on the drive-in, the, the sun popped up above that beautiful Red River Valley horizon exactly at 7.58 a.m. It was a little sleepy sun this morning. I expected it to get up earlier, but it's staying in bed a lot longer these days. So It's taking a little get, getting used to, and it, of course that's something that we run into every single year, but this time of year, especially with uh, the spread of time, like several minutes less of daylight, you know, at the beginning I, and at the end. You know, I'm kind of a nut with about the moon and the sun and the earth and all this kind of stuff or whatever in times and sunrise and sunset. So between now and December 21st, today's October 21st, two months, right? The last quarter, Great. quarter of the year. Until the uh, winter solstice. We are going to lose two more hours of daylight between yeah. now and December 21st until it starts coming back. So mm-hmm. it's it, morning and evening, it's going to shrink. Till. We could we could be on the north slope of Alaska. It could be more dramatic <laughs> yet, right? Exactly. <laughs> Father, I'm sorry, uh, Bishop Kettler uh, in St. Cloud had been the bishop in Fairbanks, and in an interview he said that was the hardest thing to get used to, is uh, in, uh, the, in the dead of winter, 22 hours of darkness every day, you know. But unless we're accused of being negative Nilly is the I appreciate the seasons and and there's so we we are having a very glorious fall. We season. certainly we, are. It, it, we have been <laughs> really blessed in our our seasons this year. So thank heaven for that. Yes. And uh, speaking of blessings, let's uh, take a moment if I could call upon you to begin this time with prayer for us, Father. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God, our Father in heaven, just uh, uh, we thank you, we praise you, we worship you, we adore you, we glorify you. Uh, still in my heart, my mind here is Luke the Evangelist. Evangelism here over Real Presence Radio. We call upon his powerful intercession, all the evangelists, um, that the word of life, Jesus Christ, will go forth through these airwaves this morning, that our hearts, our minds, our imaginations, our memories would be open to receive that word, to be transformed by that word. We ask, uh, Father, your blessing upon Real Presence Radio Network and all those involved, um, that it would bring you glory. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, as now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We're looking forward to some great conversations this morning about uh, the search retreat program, about uh, some resources from the Augustine Institute, some very helpful folks with regard to growing in our faith. But first, we have our monthly segment. We have to find some sort of catchy name for this. I was thinking about maybe a a, a walk down literary lane or something <laughs> like that. But uh, uh, that's, that's, <laughs> you've, got, you've got some alliteration in there, Father. Literary lane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, as you have heard, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Nancy Gord is again joining us. Welcome back to Real Presence Live. Oh, thank you so much. 
or in, in some of our cases, it might be languishing down literally land, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it well, remains to be yeah. seen. <laughs> we should mention that uh, our, um, that uh, Nancy's uh, usual wingman for these segments, Father Slattery, is uh, occupied with some duties through the um, Catholic schools at the Diocese of Fargo. The uh, Catholic school educators and employees are gathering as part of the um, teachers' convention break for an in-service and a professional development day. So we um, uh, we we uh, extend our prayers to everybody who is uh, participating that in that along with Bishop Folda. But we're we're grateful to have you here with us today, Nancy, and uh, we're. Um, taking a little bit different turn here with a couple of short stories that you have uh, proposed to us. Um, just to begin, if you would, by telling us, and you can decide which one we're going to go into a little more detail in first, but which uh, stories you have selected for us today. Well, the two stories we'll be discussing are Raymond's Run by Tony Cade Bambara and The Scarlet Ibis by James Hurt. And I selected these stories because they have such rich, fully developed, memorable characters, and they address sibling relationships, peer judgments, and in each case there is a disabled brother, one with intellectual challenges, one with a heart condition that affects his physical development. Okay. And... um so tell us a little bit more about um, your experience with these uh, stories. I, I assume that uh, since they both were written around the mid-20th uh, century that they've been circulating in um, uh, school curricula for quite some time here. Yes. Now, Raymond's Run is set in New York City, and it was published like in 1972. So it has a, it has a very great description, great use of urban dialects, and uh, I, about 1970, with this character squeaky, a feisty fifth grader, and it was a great read for eighth graders, and it's a great read for adults as well. But you've got this very strong-willed, very talented runner. She says, I am Mercury. I am Quicksilver. And she is in charge, actually, of her older brother because he has intellectual disabilities. And she has to make sure he doesn't go into traffic, that he's not taken advantage of. And if you read the story, you see how very protective she is of him to the point of going on the offense with mean girls who intend to make fun of Raymond. Yeah, there, you know, there really is, um, uh, in a very short space, the author does an incredible job of bringing about family dynamics, relationships between parents and and children, between siblings, and then, but she really, really focuses in on uh, pressures and tensions uh, amongst girls and even oh. wim- women and girls. Absolutely, and you can almost see this interchange happening on any street today, that a, a click of... of young girls and these fifth graders approaching another, just ready for some kind of verbal battle. And Squeaky's on her game. She knows they're going to say something mean about her brother. And even though she gets exasperated, you know, like, oh, there he is galloping along again, and I've got to rein him in and watch out for him. And 
this is my chore, this is my job. What is so wonderful about this is that she loves him. And she loves him for what he is. Toward the end of the story, after she, the magnificent runner, runs this May Day race, which she does win, even though she has some stiff competition from the new girl Gretchen, she sees Raymond running toward her. And she is so glad to see him, a runner in the family tradition. So her pride in her brother is a lot different than the pride expressed in the Scarlet Ibis. Now, what what role does... Um, well, so it's, it's an African-American girl. Right. And... Um, and even and her, I mean, I I really appreciate her her sassy character. I mean, I just I think it's just so fun and lively. Um, but I'm kind of curious as you know, being in kind of upper Midwest United States here, in, in in all the years of your teaching and so forth, how the the kids that you have taught and used this story, how how have they responded to this character? Do they identify? With her, I mean, it's yeah. interesting because my my really good priest friend is staying with me right now. He's in inner city ministry. He's been raised in the inner city, and his whole life is inner city. I visit him there quite a bit, and I so he and I actually did the story together. And I mean, he it was interesting. He had a really kind of a strong reaction to it, which surprised me, and that got me thinking. I was wondering how do how do kids in the upper Midwest how do they respond to Squeaky and how she presents herself. Well, it's interesting you asked this question because several years ago, it would have been the very, very early 2000s, we had FIAD classes in the Catholic Middle School divided um, like an all-boy and an all-girl class in the afternoon. So therefore, I had language arts classes in the eighth grade that were all-boy, all-girl. Now, the all-girl class had a very interesting reaction to Squeaky. That feeling that they had was universal. They understood totally what she was doing. And they were like, you go, girl. You know, you stick up for him and yourself. And they appreciated, even though their experience in terms of their life setting has been so different, they knew what that was like to feel threatened or approached. And then when the all-boy class read it, it was interesting. They go, oh, Squeaky is mean. And I just thought that was so interesting because the girls understood that experience and the need to be ready to handle whatever comes. Okay, and so here, I think the boys were just reacting to her words. Now, here's something, I, Nancy, I'd really like you to comment on. So part of my past experience has been with... Um, uh, I, I was on campus and working with college students and we had mm -hmm. the, the focus ministry and all this. And in the beginning of the year, we'd always have these uh, sessions where coming, bringing the team together, team building this kind of thing amongst the students and the new missionaries who are on campus and that kind of thing. And, and you know, and we always trying to emphasize like say chastity and things like this, or just, you know, themes like that amongst the college age students and how we're going mm -hmm. to bring virtue in this. And a huge, huge education happened for me one year. Um, so this probably goes back about 2009, 2010, where they were on the campsite and so forth. We're trying to bring up this topic of chastity and so forth. And this whole revelation, it just ex my mind was just open big time where, you know, as a guy and priest and with the other men working with them, we always thought, like, women struggle with chastity and how they dressed and so forth, that they were trying to impress men. 
or that they were thinking like when they're getting dressed in the morning or how they're dressing the dressing to attract the attention of men or this kind of thing and so we were coming at that angle well it turns out the women educated us said, oh no 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 we don't even think about the guy when we're when we're looking in the mirror when we're getting dressed when we're getting ready when we're thinking about our day as a woman we're not thinking about guys we're thinking about our fellow sister and there's like this inner competition like and, and what i realized was this kind of how in, in a way, if you'd say, like, maybe nowadays how women dress more risque or something or more exposing, it's like there's this competition amongst the women for, they're thinking about their sister and how they affect their sister and how there's like this real competition amongst the women, which we men were completely oblivious to. We had no idea. Well, this was a huge insight. And I, I think that works both ways, is that it isn't so much, and I'm, I'm thinking of a middle-aged, or not middle-aged, middle school age group Mm -hmm. i think the boys want to impress the boys and the girls want to impress the girls and i think frankly even as someone (laughs) who is past middle age now i think too that when even when i dress i don't know how much you know men are going to appreciate my outfit as much as the women i might be around might notice it and comment on it or ask me where I purchased it or say something about the color and how it looks on me. And and I, I think that's just true, that you do seek approval from your gender. And I think what is interesting in Squeaky's run, I don't know that Squeaky is seeking your approval so much because she's very self-confident mm-hmm. in terms of her running ability. She's like, I'm going to win. Of course, I always win. I mean, you know, but seems, what is those, it seems like I'm what sorry. was being, yeah, I'm sorry. What was coming across is the author wants, she's like setting the tone for African American women saying, here, I'm, I'm proposing a model for how women, girls and women should be. And here, here's a new way of looking at it or thinking of it. Um, here's squeaky. She's going to, she's going to be this confident woman who teaches other women how to be confident and to go forth into the world. Yes, and a bit of a, uh, well, should we say a fifth grade role model in that regard, but what makes her so very sweet, and I think it's just so interesting, her real name is something like Hazel Elizabeth Deborah Parker, and they call her Squeaky, is that it's interesting with that name Squeaky, because you think of, oh, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, you know, you notice the squeak. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a very apt nickname that Bombera chose for her. But there is such a sweetness in her because even at the end of the story, when she wins, she does stretch and comes in second. And Raymond runs to her in his kind of awkward, special way. And she goes, she's so happy to see him. And she thinks, you know, I could coach Raymond. Maybe Gretchen could help me. You know, right. she's got some skills. She's got some gifts. We could do this together. And what is so wonderful in this story, as opposed to the Scarlet Ibis, is Squeaky is doing it for Raymond. It's not it that is, she's like, yep. oh, I'm going to be this great coach. Exactly. Well, we are visiting with Nancy Gord and looking at a couple of short stories today in our monthly segment. And we'll have more after the break with Father Jason Leffer, Father James Gross, priest of the Diocese of Fargo, hosting today on Real Presence Live. We'll be right back after this. Stay with us. There's more Real Presence Live to come on the Real Presence Radio Network.
Honor your father by word and deed, that a blessing from him may come upon you. Sirach 3.8 Our priests guide us on the right path and teach us about our Catholic faith. At Real Presence Radio, we'd like to honor them for helping to deepen our relationship with Jesus. Each week on Real Presence Live, we honor our fathers with a dozen donuts generously donated by a local business. You can nominate your priest to receive special recognition by going to yourcatholicradiostation.com. And thank you to all our priests for your service to the Holy Catholic Church. If you are experiencing depression, anxiety, or suffering, especially from grieving, how can you find healing? I'm Father Chris Alar. While you should first seek professional help when needed, there is a roadmap that can help you to live your life again, and it is called the Spiritual Principles of Divine Mercy. First, come to admit that you are powerless over the loss of your loved one. Second, come to trust that Jesus can restore your life to manageability. And third, make the decision to entrust your will, your life, and your loved one to the loving care and protection of God. Join us and learn more about how to apply these healing principles in your life. Please visit suicideandhope.com so I can personally pray for anyone you've lost and to get our book, After Suicide, There's Hope for Them and You, which helps with any kind of suffering or loss, not just suicide. I promise it will help. Hi, I'm Carrie Dew, Executive Director at Riverview Place Senior Living Community in Fargo. For over 35 years, we've been honored to nourish our residents in mind, body, and spirit. We offer a full calendar of activities, events, and faith-based programming, and the best food in town. Our independent and assisted living residents thrive in our warm, comfortable, and compassionate community. We'd love to meet you. Call Marin or Katie today at 701-237-4700 to line up a tour. You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. Welcome back to Real Presence Live. Father Jason Leffer and Father James Gross joining you today from the northern Red River Valley. And uh, we are in our monthly literary lane stroll here. Uh, we, um, as, time is, uh, as time is flying by, we were discussing the uh, work Raymond's run by Tony Cade Bambara. And uh, there's another one that we need to get to, uh, The Scarlet Ibis by James Hurst. Uh, can you get us started on uh, an overview of that story, please, Nancy? Yes. Now, this again speaks of sibling relationships, and it's actually told in flashback. Now, this story came out in 1960, so if we just work with that and we look at this setting, which is in North Carolina, the years leading up to and including the years of World War One, And at the end of the story, I believe it's 1918, so the narrator of the story would be about, what, 55, 56, if you figure in his age during the story, as he reflects back on his brother Doodle, actual name William Armstrong. And he's given the nickname Doodle because of his unusual way of crawling. You know, he would crawl backwards like a doodle bug. But he had been born when the narrator, who has only identified his brother, And I think that is key. Mm -hmm. We never hear, like, a parent call him by name, like, you know, Jeffrey, pass the butter, anything like that in the story. He is brother, and that was his role. 
And he looks back at his time with Doodle, because Doodle lived only to be about seven or eight years old. But he was born, and he, they did not think he was going to survive. And they kept him, you know, on the bed, on like a rubber sheet, away from the family. And they weren't sure that he was intellectually sound or not, that there may be a problem there, too, because physically he was very, very weak. But Brother, if you recall this in the story, Brother goes in one day, and he's, he plans to eliminate Doodle. <laughs> right. He's plotting his You death. know, and so he walks in, and Doodle grins at him. And he goes running to his parents, and you know what? He's all there. He's all there. And from that point on, Brother engages Doodle in life, which I, I think is very important, because we can judge Brother very harshly at the end of the story. But he treats them like a brother. You know, he puts them in the car. They race around uh, corners. He takes them out in his favorite beautiful swamp. And they they, they they have a future. Yes. And so he makes Doodle an actant in life. Now, one of the most powerful things I think uh, that the author succeeds at is he, he makes this experience so very real. Like, how many of us right. as broken human beings, like, mm-hmm. we're both good and we're both bad. And this battle that goes on between us, and that, that battle comes out so clearly in this mm-hmm. story, and it's so powerful. Well, and there are twice, there are two times in the story where, brother, the narrator goes, I was cruel. Right. I mean, he admits that that cruelty rose up in me. He has and a powerful, he, it. he has a powerful line, his insight about pride, where it gives life yeah. and gives death. I mean, that, oh my gosh, that just cuts the heart, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it, uh, and a lot of, there are so many lines in literature that you just remember, but when Brother takes Doodle, they had made a coffin for him when he was very, very little, because they did not expect him to live. And it's up, I believe, in the loft in the barn. And brother, and this is his cruelty, says, you go touch that. That was your coffin. And, you know, Doodle is like, I won't, I won't. No, and brother goes, well, then I'm going to leave you up here. And he says, brother, don't leave me. Don't leave me. Mm-hmm. You, you know, and that, at the end of the story, are his, that's his last, those are his last words. You know, some of the... the- just powerful Christian themes have come out in this story. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's obviously a Cain and Abel story, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, but the, there's also the, there's this constant reflection going on. Um, at least in my mind, is wh- where's who's the Christ figure here? And, and it's interesting. And the question is: Is there redemption at the end of this story? Is there? Has the narrator ended up at a better place than when he started? I mean, he, he has these these powerful insights and you're like well is is the big brother is he a christ figure for his little brother or is he a cain figure for his brother abel you know and you know the story is so powerful because it keeps going back and forth between these two possibilities of you know cain and abel or, or jesus redeeming adam you know and what what you always look at too in literature and and i always used to mention this is that People understand suffering, and our suffering unites us with Christ. And if you look at during the course of the story, in the flashback, it is 
doodle who suffers physically. I mean, toward the end of the story, he's failing. He is the broken bird, the tropical ibis, mm-hmm. and who's been blown off course. And there's great symbolism in the story with, you know, the bleeding tree and the decay of the crops that year, kind of paralleling doodle's de- physical decline. But he's, his suffering is there because of his heart condition at birth. But brother does bring him joy. Yeah, I mean, a- he wants to be with brother. Brother has given him, I don't know, is it fair to say a life worth living? Well, so here, so here's the irony, and this is the Chestertonian. No, we were doing Chesterton. Here's the Chestertonian flip. You know, Chesterton always flips everything upside down. Right. And so, I mean, you know, the true hero of this story is Doodle. I mean, Doodle is the Christ figure. Doodle yes. is the the suffering servant. I mean, I think about it. I mean, Doodle is the one who draws real life out of brother. Doodle is the one who exposes evil in brother's heart and goodness in brother's heart. Doodle is mm-hmm. the one that gives him the choice. I mean, just brother, he admits that he cannot handle the weakness of his brother. He wants to kill his brother because he's weak. He can't, he's embarrassed by it. He won't take him to the other boys because he's embarrassed by it. Well, but it's the weakness that exposes this strength or this this evil, this wickedness, this nastiness in brother's heart. And the sacrifice of Doodle out of love for his older brother is what gives brother a chance to become, you know, a real living human being. And this is what this is what differentiates Raymond's run from the Scarlet Ibis is the fact that brother is ashamed of Doodle, his weakness, and what helps to bring about Doodle's end is brother's insistence that he does all these strong physical things, you know, swims and rows the boat and, you know, climbs the rope. And and Doodle, who is getting increasingly more frail, can't do it. And brother runs from him in that storm because he is disappointed, because he views Doodle as a failure, and that failure reflects upon him. Remember, he was so proud when Doodle could walk. He's the one who got Doodle walking. Right, and and to reveal it to the rest of his family that they didn't have any idea that the two of them had been working on this so hard and so long. And, And Brother was not proud necessarily of Doodle, but of what he had done, and the narrator recognizes this. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And again, I think, I mean, so here, I mean, here's our powerful, powerful Christian theme coming out of this story. And it's, it's the same thing humanity has struggled with ever since original sin, which is, we're, we, you know, we are attracted to worldly things. We're, we're attracted to power and athletic ability and fame and fortune. And, and yet God sends his son who becomes broken in our midst to, to call us to love. I mean, Doodle is an invitation to love. He, he, he is the reason that we, we just don't become tyrants and oppressive. He, you know, 
it, it, without without doodle in our lives, we're we're just going to become tyrants basically. and reduced to utilitarianism. Basically, totally, completely. Yeah. What what can you accomplish? What can you produce? Rather than who you are in that innate value. It, of it, think about how for the doodle's role in the entire family, like drawing the whole. I mean, the whole family rejects them and puts them in the room on a rubber sheet, you know, or whatever. Right. But but doodle, in the end, I mean, he draws the entire family together. I mean, they actually yeah. come together and relate and communicate and they celebrate over, you know, it's anyway, it's, it's the need that brings people together and causes right. relationship and friendship and love. Yeah. Well, and it speaks so much too of the importance of a family centered life and also the appreciation for all human life and the gifts that they can bring us. And Doodle does, he does bring gifts. If, if yes. nothing else, a great revelation for brother and think in about, terms of what it is to be a man and a human being. And think about 40 years later. You know, it was the bleeding tree. It was the, oh. the cross and the tree that 40 years later, he, he even asked, he says, why am I thinking of my brother? I mean, the brother is still giving to him 40 years later, calling yes. him back to love, challenging him back yep. to love. Well, Nancy, we just have a few seconds left. Could you quickly share with us what you may be uh, pondering for uh, the next uh, for the next episode, the next time here? Yes, it is a very recent publication. It came out in 2020, and it is entitled The Book of Lost Friends by Lisa Wingate. And it is just full of things about family and blood connections and people we have lost in our lives. Excellent. Well, you, you should do a good job of challenging us, that's for sure. <laughs> Expanding our horizons, definitely. Right. Nancy Gord, yes. thank you so much for, again, for joining us and uh, blessings to you and the rest of your day. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. On the other end of this break coming up, we'll be beginning our Straight Talk segment, and we want to hear from you. 877-795-0122 is that number to call. Straight Talk begins right after the break. You're listening to Real Presence Live. Live, engaging, and local, this is Real Presence Live, where we bring you positive and uplifting stories and share the great things happening in our local area on the Real Presence Radio Network. 